thankful that you are all here this morning. Uh, it's good to be back with you. Last Sunday, I had the, the privilege and the honor to speak down in our children's church. And uh, they're a much easier crowd than you guys. So <laughs> much easier crowd. Much easier crowd. I know if I say something just a little off theologically, I'm not going to get like... Uh, you know, harangue for it. All right. Well, again, I'm so thankful. And by the way, I'm kidding. For those of you who might be guests, it's not my heart or goal to say something that's not biblically accurate. Anyways, as we're here on this uh, uh, Sunday in February, and just, it's hard to believe it's February the way the weather has been, right? Well, we should be we should be shoveling at this time of the year, and we haven't been. Ooh. Ouch! I'll just stick to the Bible. Okay, here we go. It's going with the Bible now. Just going to do the Bible. We won't go off in any other direction, right? So uh, we're going to begin our Easter series today. Um, we have seven or eight weeks leading up to Easter, and we were praying about, talking about, thinking about what to do, and uh, we're calling what we want to share with you over the next number of weeks, Passion, with a subtitle, The Final Week of Jesus. A lot of times people have referred to this week as the Holy Week. But the way, that the, um, the way that things are laid out during Holy Week, we don't really have a time, the opportunity to talk about what Jesus did on the Friday before Good Friday, or the Saturday before Good Friday, or the Sunday before, well, I guess the Sunday we do because we, we talk about Palm Sunday. But what, what was it that Jesus was up to for those seven or eight days leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. We want to we look at that over the next several weeks. If someone were to tell you that you had a week left to live, now I don't mean you're laying in a hospital, you have no hope of recovery, and you're not going anywhere. I'm talking about you walked in here this morning, and to the best of your knowledge, you're fully alive, You've got no issues pending. But what if somebody told you, or what if you became aware that you had one week left to live? What would you do with that week? What would you think about? It seems to me that you would both do and think about what's of importance or significance to you. If Jesus, in this case, was going to give any final thoughts or impart one last thing to his disciples or followers, now would be the time to do it, right? I mean, if you had just days left to go, now would be the time to seize that moment. So over the next few weeks, we're going to see what, what rose to the top of importance 
in, in, in the kingdom of God, in the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, I'll say it this way, we're going to see what's of utmost importance to God. Now to understand this last week in Christ's life, we need to kind of hop around through all the Gospels because the Gospels of this scene or this drama that's unfolding, uh, the different Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of bring in or, or bring to the table a different scenes and scenery of the drama as it unfolds. <clears throat> you kind of, they, they call that synthesizing. They call it bringing all of that together. One of the books that's out there is called the Synoptic Gospels where you can find the timeline of Christ's uh, his whole life, but this last week that we're focusing on, you can find that all synthesized together, pulling verses and passages from the different Gospels. On the Friday before Good Friday, we find Jesus leaving the city of Jericho and turning now to head towards Jerusalem. For those who may not know, it was in Jerusalem that our Lord was crucified, buried, and then rose again. As this turn towards Jerusalem begins, Jesus gives a teaching. He starts out with a teaching to those who are still following him about just how valuable they were. How valuable these people who had come to, uh, uh, to leave all in order to follow him. How valuable they were to him. The teaching is called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You can find it in Matthew chapter 20. In fact, I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you or you use a device for your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 20 because we're going to be in that chapter all morning long. But Jesus starts this, his week, the day off, the week off leading up to his uh, passion. He, he starts that off by giving this teaching of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. For those of you who, are, who aren't familiar with the parable, it goes like something like this. There was a landowner of, of a vineyard, a guy who owned a vineyard, who was looking to hire some people to work in his vineyard. And so he goes out and he finds uh, some people standing around uh, waiting for work, and he picks some of them and agrees to a particular wage for the day, and then sends him sends them to work in his vineyard. A little while later, he realizes he needs some more workers, so he goes back to the same crew or crowd of people and says, hey, anybody still looking for some work today? And he again picks some more people. They uh, uh, end up going also to work in his vineyard. He does this three or four times, and now we're at the end of the day, almost closing time, almost quitting time, and he goes there with just a couple of hours left in the day to work, and he's apparently still had a need for some people to serve, and so he goes to the last, some of the last ones standing there, and he asked them, you know, what have you, this is what he literally said, he said, why have you been standing here all day long uh, doing nothing, right? 
We've got a few folks hanging around there still. And they reply, because no one has hired us. Nobody. So this same owner said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So we've got these, um, with these different waves of workers going to work in the master's vineyard. And then it comes the end of the day, and it's time to receive their, their pay for the day, right? And it tells us that the ones who were hired at the very end of the day were actually the first ones to end up getting paid. And they ended up getting paid the same amount as the ones who went to work earlier in the day. You've, many of you have probably heard that story before, that parable, right? Now, you'll know, if you've read that story, you'll know that those that had worked from the very beginning of the day kind of got upset at the fact that they weren't getting any more than the ones who only worked uh, at the last, at the, for the last couple of hours of the day. They're, they're upset about it. And, 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 the, and the teaching, uh, Jesus said, are you upset because, I, essentially because I'm being generous? Is that what you're upset about? And then he ends with these words. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, what was it that he was trying? Remember, he's saying things at this point, not that he never, he ne, it's not as though he said stuff that uh, didn't ever matter, but I got to believe that he's focusing in on some really important stuff right here, right? Now, I just want to say most of us, or I'll say it this way, most of the people in our culture have no concept of, of finding work like this, Right? We don't. That's not how it works, right? Not in our culture. That's not how it works. Most people in our culture, if they're looking for a job, they go to an employment agency or they hear of a job that places accepting applications. They go and fill out an application and they either get hired or they don't, right? Am I right? Is that how it works? Now, when we were a number of years ago, uh, when we were in India... And we were traveling with Daniel. Daniel's our, our, our friend there who lives there. Uh, we were over there visiting and doing some, a conference or something at, on that adventure. And, uh, <clears throat> and we were going down one of his uh, streets there in the city. And we came to this intersection where there was literally hundreds of people all around this intersection. And so I said to Daniel, I said, what are all, I mean, this is first thing in the morning, right? Uh, I mean, we might, if we saw hundreds of people like that, we'd think, well, is there a football game here today? Or, you know, what's going on, all these people? Uh, and I said, Daniel, what, what are all these people doing at this intersection? And uh, here's a picture. Uh, this isn't where we were, but I found this picture online. And it was a lot like this. There were just people hanging out. There was even way more people than this at this intersection. But there's a picture of what it might look like, right? And I said to Daniel, I said, what are the, all these people doing here? He said, oh, this is where uh, uh, 
owners of companies or owners of businesses come to hire people for the day. Just everybody knows this is the intersection you show up at if you're looking to work for the day, right? And he amazingly, he said, you remember that place in the Bible where it says that they went and got workers for the vineyard? He actually quoted this passage to me in describing that moment. He says right there in the Bible. That's how we do it. That in India, at least this time in India, church changing, but uh, you know, if, uh, if a business person needed somebody to work for the day, they would go to this intersection to find people. All right? So when we read this story, when we read this story, in our culture and in our moment in time, we tend to focus in on the fairness or the unfairness of what Jesus is describing here, right? We have been touched by uh, the, the thoughts of equity and equality uh, more than, you, than maybe we realize, right? So we, we look at it, and our focus is on how come there was a discrepancy there in pay? That doesn't seem fair, right? What we fail to focus on is what Jesus was really getting at in telling this parable. How many of you here have ever experienced um, uh, trying out for a sport? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever played pickup basketball or pickup... What are we talking about here? Pickup uh, baseball or something, right? Football, there you go. Uh, I would think most of us in this room have at one point or another been in a lineup, so to speak, where we were being, you know, people were going, yeah, I want you, yeah, I don't want you. Now listen, I got to just tell you, uh, whenever it came to basketball, right, whenever it came to basketball, uh, there was probably a question whether I'd still be standing there and all the teams were filled, right? A couple other sports, I, I, I got picked early on, right? But when it came to basketball, not so much, right? So, so what, what Jesus is getting at here, you got to put yourself in the story, right? You got to. If you're going to get it, you got to put yourself in the story. Now, as you can imagine, just like as we, I described in, in picking up teams or not, not making the tryouts or whatever, uh, all these people are there. They all want to work, right? But employers have cut. This isn't their first rodeo, right? This isn't like a whole new batch of people. They know who's at that event. They come to, like in Daniel's situation, you show up there every day. You know the people there. You know who the good workers are, right? You know who they are. And you know not so much. Right? Right? You know that. And so this story is about those people that didn't get picked. That's what the teaching's about. And God is saying to those of you who feel like you've been left out, marginalized, aren't worth being on the team, 
Nobody came and hired you. Jesus is teaching us that in God's way of doing things, nobody gets rejected. If somebody wants to work in his vineyard, you are all welcome. And you know what? You know what? You all get the same grace. You all get the same favor. Nobody is more important than the other person in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's what he's talking about. And you'll miss it if you focus in on equity. You will totally miss the point. Jesus is saying, what I'm about to do is for everybody. If you want to be a part of the team, you are welcome. I will hire you. You're you will be on team Jesus, right? You got it? That's how Jesus starts out. He, he says, nobody's rejected. Remember the passage in the Bible that says, it says, because we, I heard somebody uh, even this morning on the way into church talking about uh, free will and things like that. But let, let us never be uh, forgotten. Let it not be forgotten that God chose us. Let me start there again. God chose you. And by the way, he didn't choose you for your intellect. All right? Just to make that clear, uh, nobody here is smarter than God, all right? He didn't, he didn't say, boy, I really need somebody smart. I think I'll pick them, right? No, no. He didn't choose any of us for our great power. Like, like I'm strong, <laughs> yeah. He needs a strong guy, right? No. Or our prowess, like, oh, yeah, I, 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 I'm smart, street smart, right? I, I know how to get her done. No, 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 no. Listen, listen to me. We are all, all of us in here are last hour workers. Everybody in here, we're all last hour workers. Right here, right here. I'd been left out all day. I didn't make the team. And at the very last minute, God said, you want to work? Come on, I want you. You're on my team. That's us. That's us. That's humanity. That's people. Have you ever noticed that Jesus did not go to the halls of government? He did not go to the halls of the synagogue or the halls of education to get his disciples. Did you ever notice that? You know where he went? He went to the least of these. He went to the people that nobody else wanted on their team. That's who he went after. He went after some rough and gruff fishermen. He went after a tax collector. He went, he went after people who were late-in-the-day workers. That's who he went and got, to be a part of his team. That's the first thing Jesus talked about a week before he passed. The second thing Jesus did on that day, as they made their way to Jerusalem, was to tell them once again what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. This is the third and final time he will talk about it because he didn't want them to be taken by surprise. 
And they were anyways. So in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 and 19, we read this. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. In, these, in this brief passage, Jesus gives them or tells them the who, the what, and the when. In regards to the who, it, he tells them the chief priests and teachers of the law. And if you, know, if you know how the day of his crucifixion unfolded, you'll know that they're the first ones to begin to bring charges against Jesus. The what he tells them, will be they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. You remember how the story went? Started out with the Jewish leaders, but then they didn't get what they wanted, so they went to the Roman leaders to try to, uh, to make this all happen. Jesus is telling them exactly how it will unfold, and then the when is on the third day he will be raised to life. Now, what is Jesus trying to convey here? Well, you know, he's not just wanting to give them details, although I think it's uh, how nice of him to tell them. Uh, and then when it unfolded, they still didn't, uh, still didn't uh, grasp it, right? But what this conveys is that Jesus is, what's going to happen in Jerusalem is not some kind of miscalculation. Like, you know... Uh, uh, oops, I shouldn't have went there, right? No, Jesus is telling them because he knows what lies ahead of him. With every sentence that Jesus spoke, it tells us that Jesus died on purpose. There were no surprises, no hesitation, no faltering on his behalf. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to fulfill the very purpose he came for. The Bible tells us that this mission, this final uh, battle that he is about to engage in, did not begin at Jericho as they're leaving Jericho. It did not begin in Galilee or Nazareth or even Bethlehem. And in fact, it began long before that. Listen to how Peter puts it when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says there, Jesus was given to you. And with the help of those who don't know the law, you put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But this was God's plan, which he had made long ago. This was God's plan that he had made long ago. He knew all this would happen, but God raised Jesus from the dead and set him free from the pain of death because death could not hold him. Jesus had come to earth for this moment. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, his last and final battle of the mission, but he did so, and this is important, he did so with a promise from his Father. This is a promise, but on the third day he will be raised to life again. Jesus told him that. On the third day he will be raised to life Again, what that tells me is that when I'm facing my Jerusalem, 
when I'm facing situations and circumstances in my life that are not favorable, it would be very advantageous for me to have the promise of God in my mind, in my heart, and on my lips. Right? Jesus didn't just tell him the bad stuff. He told him the good stuff, right? We are so used to just talking about the bad stuff, right? But as believers, we need to also uh, realize that we've been singing about it all morning, that God's love never fails, he never gives up. Those are what we need on our lips, right? That's where it needs to be on our lips and so I say, if you're confused, you might want to read Jeremiah 29.11. If you're feeling condemned, you might want to read Romans 8.1. If you're wondering where God is, you might want to check out Hosea 11.9. If you're feeling unloved, look up Ephesians 3.18 and 19. Because those are all promises of God having the last word. Just as Jesus had the promises of God on his lips as he stepped towards his Jerusalem, you and I should have the promises of God on our lips when we're facing our battles. Now, so he gives a teaching about how valuable that we are. He talks to them about matters of what's going to happen and that, that we should be uh, you know, remembering uh, that on the third day, this is going to turn around. Uh, but on that same day, a week before his crucifixion, a mom comes along, a mother. Here she is. She comes along, and she comes to Jesus lobbying for one of her sons to be his second in command. A mom. She's looking to do her boy a favor, at least one of them a favor, and asking Jesus, can you let one of my sons be your second in command? In this moment, Jesus reminds her, and his disciples for that matter, that his kingdom is not about the kind of power that we know on earth. It's not about prestige as defined by the world, but a kingdom that values the heart of a servant. And in this moment, Jesus uses his own life as an example. And he says in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man, let me say that to you again, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember, you got to remember the context. The context is a mom lobbying, uh, you know, Getting, trying to get Jesus to do her a favor. And, 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 and essentially he's saying uh, to this mom, Mom, you, 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 it's crooked in your thinking. You're, it's messed up. Something's wrong there. Because the kingdom that I am bringing to, to be, into being, is, is way different than the kingdoms of this earth. Uh, my kingdom is about leadership, servant leadership specifically. Now, I want to focus in on something here that's really important. Jesus says, this is him talking about himself, 
He says, just as the Son of Man. Say that title with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Son of Man. Son of Man. Now, <clears throat> of this title, uh, uh, this yeah, title occurs 82 times in the New Testament. 82 times this title, Son of Man, uh, gets recorded. 81 of them, of the 82, 81 of them are in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Of the 82, 80 times it's used by Jesus himself. In other words, it's how Jesus refers to himself. Now, he could have used a myriad of titles, right? He could have called himself King of Kings, right? Could have done that, been totally appropriate for him to do that. He could have said, uh, I'd like you to call me the great I am, right? That's who I am. I'd like you to call me that. He could have said, uh, how about Lord of all, or Jehovah, or, you know, the, the, the names are endless, right? For all the names of God. He could, have, he, could have, he could have referred to himself in those terms, but he didn't. He chose to refer to himself as the Son of Man. They would have heard him say, Son of Man. And when they heard him say, Son of Man, they would have understood something by him referencing himself in that way. Now, for you and I to understand what this means, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me, for us to understand that, we have to understand what did Jesus mean when he referred to himself as the Son of Man. Now, most students of the Bible agree that the title Son of Man finds its origin in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Particularly Daniel chapter 7. If you are familiar with the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, you will know that in that book there is a ton of imagery. Very much like the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And so people go back to the book of Revelation, or excuse me, the book of Daniel, and try to make sense of this imagery that's presented for us. And a lot have made a carryover between what Daniel says in the Old Testament and some of the imagery we find in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. For example, let me give you, let me give you some uh, uh, things there. Uh, the, there's a bunch of beasts in the book of Daniel. And some of those beasts, for example, there's a, a lion with eagle's wings, right? That's weird, right? We're not used to seeing lions with wings. There's a lion with eagle's wings that's put forward, and many believe that it represented Babylon, right? So there's all this imagery to equal something, right? For another example, there's a bear with three ribs in its mouth, right? Like, like it's hungry and it's just devoured something, right? And that's, they, many believe that that's referring to Medo-Persia, 
There's Alexander the Great referenced here as a leopard with four wings and four heads and another beast with iron teeth that many believe represented Rome. But as this drama, this uh, drama of imagery plays out, all of these beasts end up collapsing. All of them end up uh, dying. All of them end up destroyed. And the At the end of the drama, the one that is left standing is referred to as the Son of Man holding a sword in his hand. Now, if you were a Jewish person, you would come to, they would have been taught, they would have come to understood that this title, Son of Man, meant conquering king. Got it? Let me say that again. The Son of Man title would equal conquering king. They would have heard Terminator. When they heard Son of Man, Terminator. Right? When they heard Son of Man, Superman. When they heard Son of Man, Equalizer. Right? That's how they would have heard it. You've Some of you have seen the movies, right? Right? As a Jewish person heard him calling himself the Son of Man, they would have heard, hey, this is the person who is coming to rescue us as a people. This is the guy. Another way of looking at it is this phrase, son of man, would have been viewed as like a four-star general who wasn't a four-star general for what he did in the office. He's a four-star general because he was out in the front of the battle leading his troops to victory, right? David was kind of seen that way in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus used this title in that way. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus spoke of a new world where the Son of Man would sit on his glorious throne. In Matthew 24, 30, Jesus said the Son of Man would come on clouds from heaven with great power and authority. In Matthew 26, verse 64, he spoke of the man, Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. All of these references clearly go to what I just explained to you. That the Jewish people would have understood Jesus referencing himself as being the one who would come to conquer their adversaries. They would have cheered. When they heard Son of Man, they would have like, yes! Yes! And he backed it up. He backed it up. He walked on water. He raised people from the dead. He delivered people of diseases that others were unable to cure people of. He cast out demons. He did all of this stuff to prove, if you will, or to back up that he was indeed the Son of Man. But when Jesus spoke of the Son of Man suffering, It did not compute. There was no link there. 
It did not fit the picture that they had, be, that they had painted for them of who the Son of Man was supposed to be. Can we blame them? No. They were in a place in their world, in world's history where they needed to be set free. Somebody needed to be conquered in order for them to not be under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so I can only imagine when they heard Son of Man, they're like, yes, yes. No wonder on Palm Sunday they're there just giving it up for him because they were in faith believing that he was the guy who was going to be the Terminator. But instead, Jesus is in this moment telling them that he will be handed over and killed. It, can you hear it? It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the picture. That he had come to be, not be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for a man. Is it any wonder why Luke, in his rendering of this day in Jesus' life, is it any wonder in his passage, he includes this verse that Matthew doesn't. It says the disciples did not understand any of this. They didn't understand any of it. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. What the disciples failed to see then, it's easy for us to see now. Did you catch that? Like we get on the other side of the cross, we, we get it, right? Jesus was no ordinary general. Most generals who are considered heroes are done so for coming up with a battle plan, a strategic battle plan, and sending the soldiers out to the front lines to accomplish it. Right? Schwarzkopf, Patton. All those guys, they come up with great ideas, but they send out the grunts. You guys go to the front here and get this done, right? This is no ordinary general. The general we are worshiping and serving sent himself out. He went to the front of the line. He took the bullets. He said, I'm trying to make it so no soldier has to die and be lost. He's the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, not just for many, but for you. For me. This first day in the final week of Jesus' life was a really full day, but he wasn't done yet. As they're headed towards Jerusalem, the Bible tells us 
as they're at the, at, the, at the outskirts of the city of Jericho, they came across a couple blind men who were crying out to Jesus for him to heal them. If you go there and read that passage, you'll notice that those who were there in that moment were telling these two blind guys to shut up. You almost get the sense like, like they thought that Jesus had way more important business to tend to than helping them. Can I just tell you something this morning? You may already know this if you don't. Jesus is never too busy for you. He, remember, where, where are we at here with this? He is about to, that something that's been planned from the very foundations of the world, he is now, we're, we're in full engagement mode. We're headed towards Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but when I got important stuff going on in my life, I am quite preoccupied. Like that's all I can think about, right? But that's not how Jesus responded. He didn't say, you know what, guys? If it was any other day, I'd help you. But I'm really busy today. And I got some really busy stuff up in front of me. That's not what it says. It says, Jesus, while everybody else is telling him to get lost, Jesus is saying, how can I help you? While others saw these two as impediments, Jesus had their betterment in mind. And what's amazing, after he heals them and they can see, I love this, love this verse. It says, they got up and they followed Jesus. <laughs> they became workers in the vineyard. At the very last hour, they said, can we be a part of the team too? And he said, You're, come on, come on in. I wonder sometimes how busy we are that we just fail to have the time to have compassion on other people. I'm thankful that I, Jesus had a really full daytimer this week ahead. But somehow he found time. to totally transform these guys' lives. We are valuable to him. He's not an ordinary general, this son of man. 
and he's never, ever too busy for us, regardless of what lies may be told us. I'm going to invite the elders. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper today. I asked Scott a few weeks ago, I said, I'd, I'd like to have the Lord's table soon here sometime in the next week or two. And when I started looking at some of the passages that we would cover on this first day of, of the last week of Jesus, I said, how appropriate for the subject matter. I want this table to serve as a reminder to us this morning. You know, I, the Bible makes a lot of generalities. For God so loved the whole world. That's a, that's a general, general speak. It's a generality. But what I really want you to hear this morning is, is that we're those last day worker people. That just, just when there was just enough time left, Jesus came and chose us. We're those people that instead of sending us to the front line of the battle, he said, you stay here. I'm, I got something I need to take care of. And went ahead and died for us. You are valuable to him. And this morning, I want this table to, to underline that in your heart. Never forget, never, ever, ever forget. This, you know, when you get caught up in the religion aspect of any faith, you lose sight of. It's easy to lose sight of the God who we serve. The one who is compassionate. The one who has gone ahead of us. And picked us even when no one else wanted us. That's the God that we worship. We're going to go ahead and serve the uh, emblem of his body and the bread. And I would just ask, you know, you're welcome to sing along as Heidi leads us in a little worship. But I'm going to ask everybody hangs on to it until everyone has been served. It'll take a few minutes. And then we'll, we'll just say a prayer. If you're here as a guest, you are more than welcome to share in our time of uh, communing with the Lord right here. You know, the only one thing that God has ever asked for any of us is that we put our faith in Him. So I invite you to share in His table this morning.